Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Michelle Voss-Roberts. She's an Associate Professor of Theology and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at Wake Forest University and winner of the AAR Book Award in Constructive Reflective Studies. She's here to speak to us about her book, Taste of the Divine, Hindu and Christian Theologies of Emotion, which was published with Fordham University Press. Congratulations, Michelle, and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Christian. This book, you're engaging both Hindu and Christian theologies, and I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of an overview of this project of comparative theology. Where does this book fit into that conversation, and how do you see South Asian resources aiding Christian theology? Well, comparative theology, as it's being practiced in the academy in the United States right now, has its roots in the work of Francis X. Clooney, who's at Harvard, who also studies Hindu and Christian traditions. And the basic idea is that comparative theology differs from comparative religion, and it also differs from tradition-specific evaluations of other traditions, what Christian theologians call theology of religious pluralism. Comparative religion tends to take a rather objective perspective on studying the world's religions, and comparative theologians acknowledge that every scholar is positioned somewhere, and many scholars are positioned within faith communities. And so a theologian is answerable to their faith communities. They will be asking questions related to their particular position and the categories and questions and commitments of their own religious tradition. And so comparative theology acknowledges that a scholar from that kind of position does engage another tradition in those ways. However, comparative theology doesn't want to step in and, and sort of immediately make blanket judgments about whether there's truth or salvation in another tradition. Instead, uh, as Clooney recommends, there's kind of a withholding of that kind of judgment in favor of a really close engagement, a reading back and forth between the traditions to see what new sorts of questions arise, what new categories arise from another tradition that help one see one's own tradition in a new way. So it becomes a very generative an ongoing conversation rather than a judgment on another tradition. So whereas comparative theology in its early years and its early decades had been primarily textual. It really focused on reading two texts in depth side by side and back and forth. Now comparative theology is developing in certain new directions, and my work is a part of some of those new directions. My first book was textual work with two women theologians, and the angle that I wanted to press there was that marginal voices, or voices that have been treated as marginal within traditions, also deserve attention from comparative theologians. So it shouldn't be maybe an implicit statement about whose voices define traditions, uh, you know, reading, you know, Thomas Aquinas along with somebody major from the Hindu tradition like Shankara, that sort of implicitly says whose voices are important. And so by bringing in the voices of women mystics and having that comparative conversation, it says, look, this discipline can and should be applied to many different kinds of voices. And so in this book, Taste of the Divine, I do that by going to Dalit sources and by doing 
that, I also then stretch to a place where texts are not always available. And so I look at uh, things like rituals and worship services, and I'm starting to nibble at the edges of what other people are, are going to do and are doing much more than I am, uh, which might even be to take an ethnographic or, or ritual studies approach on comparative theology. And so their embodiment is very much a part of, of where I'm going with it and also a focus that, that Clooney also does, but in kind of in a different way now on affect and emotion as being theologically important. And for this book, you use this conceptual category, uh, rasa, as a guiding interpretive concept. Can you tell us about this term and, and what does an Indian aesthetic theory provide your Christian theology of emotion? So rasa is a category from Indian aesthetic theory. It comes out of the realm of drama and dance drama in particular. And the idea is that when a performer is performing in a story, there are many different inputs that they ought to give in order to make rasa arise in an audience. And so what is rasa? The word means kind of sap or essence, or here it means aesthetic bliss. So an actor is doing all sorts of things. There's the plot, there's the setting, there's the physical gestures and emotions, there's the tenor of the words, and all of these things come together to produce an emotion. Rasa also names there are nine basic foundational human emotions that this theory says that drama can evoke. And then there are a whole bunch of 33 kind of subsidiary emotions that foster those nine basic ones. Uh, but they say basically if you as an actor or as a dancer can have all of these inputs just right, the audience will feel something. It will feel the emotion that you're trying to convey, whether it be anger or love or disgust. But then also, rasa is the culmination of that emotion in a work of art, which is a, a transcendent aesthetic bliss. So that's the rasa, which is akin to religious experience. It's a transcendent bliss that's like, the theory says, a taste of Brahman, of of the divine. Later Hindu theologians like the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition take up rasa and make it explicitly theological. So they say that devotion to Krishna is about cultivating the rasa of love, pakti rasa, the rasa of devotional love. And there are many different things that you can do in your practices that will evoke that. So these are mental and imaginative practices of being a player within the drama of Krishna. There are ritual things that you can do, things involved in the worship of the community, like singing songs and adoring images. And so all of this very embodied practical input to one's religious practice is what arrives at the transcendent experience of devotional love. Now, what I think is so helpful about this is that it does name those embodied 
dimensions and says explicitly how they contribute to religious experience. And you asked earlier why it is that these South Asian traditions are helpful for me as a comparative theologian. And for me, it's so much about the embodied aspect of religion. I, I was raised in a Protestant tradition that had you know almost no explicit valuation of the aesthetic of beauty, very little decoration in the worship space. And when I encountered Hindu traditions, it was bright goddesses and incense and all of these things, which really made me wonder what was going on there. And through this study, I realized that all religious traditions have practices that create a certain mood and help to foster the intended religious outcome in its practitioners. Now, out of this uh, multitude of emotional states, I guess, in developing your holistic theology of emotion, you focus the majority of the book on three, peace, love, and fury, as structural motifs. What was the logic behind the three themes you chose to focus on in the book, and how do they complement each other for your theology of emotion? Well, peace was the first of the emotions that was theorized as a rasa, and that was in the 11th century philosopher and literary theorist Abhinavagupta. And this comes right out of rasa theory, where if the goal really is this transcendent state, where you actually kind of become detached from your own personal situation and have a momentary taste of Brahman, that is pretty much what's named by the ninth rasa, which is shanta or peace. And so as a philosopher, he develops that rasa as the culmination of meditation, abstracting from all of the things happening around you and getting to a place of non-dual awareness, the peace of meditation. When rasa was picked up again in the medieval period by the Gaudiya Vaishnavas, they turned they turned a corner with that. So whereas Abhinavagupta said that rasa was depersonalized in general tasting of emotion, they said, no, it's very personal. The love of Krishna is all about developing a, ses a sense of minus or possession of a personal love for Krishna. And so they took it in that direction of love as being the most important religious rasa. I put both of those thinkers in conversation with Christian thinkers as a way of seeing whether there were openings in part in my own tradition for these, and of course there are. On the peace side of things, I work with the Indian Christian artist Jyoti Sahi, who's producing art now in Bangalore, and he uses a lot of Indian idioms in his work, including the ones associated with yoga and meditation. He himself has an art ashram, which is about creating and experiencing art as a way of experiencing God. And so he comes into conversation with Abhinavagupta. And then it was pretty easy to find on the Christian side someone to put into conversation on the bhakti rasa, the devotional love. I read Rupa Goswamin along with Bernard of Clairvaux with his mystical readings of the Song of Songs. So one thing that I found in both of these emotions, both peace and love, is that even though there's a lot of embodied input to producing these rasas, these religious emotions, and even though in the erotic modality it seems to be all about bodies, there's really quite a bit of 
transcending of bodies, right? A denial that, oh, any of the erotic encounters between Krishna and the gopi or between the monk and God, you know, as while reading the Song of Songs, this actually has nothing to do with the body, the commentators say. And um, my feminist sensibilities kind of want to question that. And since I'm also interested in reading from the margins of traditions, I moved to see what Dalit Christians, Dalits are the, the broken, the oppressed, the, the people who fall outside the caste system and have been treated as untouchable, what do they think about Rasa theory? And some people explicitly reject it and say, no, that's a Brahminical, high caste way of thinking about art and religion. And we're not interested in transcending bodies. We want to pay attention to bodies and issues of justice and protest that. So along with that, I discovered that there's also an angle where there is rasa. And so I spoke with some groups of people involved in drumming troops, reclaiming the drumming arts as a symbol of of their heritage and all of the emotions that that drumming conveys, including an emotion of protest and of fury against injustice. When the book moves in that direction, it's a way of revaluing the body or claiming the body, but then also speaking back to some of the more transcendent and otherworldly parts of Rasa theory in ways that Dalit Christians and other Dalits in India have a very emotional and religious sensibility about their work. And this move to the Dalit context, I think, is a useful pairing with the first two sections of the book. Can you tell us a little bit about Dalit arts and activism and how it works in conversation with these aesthetic emotions of peace and love? In the book, you have almost kind of ethnographic little snapshots to kind of explain what's going on here. So what kind of theological ideals do you see being expressed through Dalit activities? Well, I relied a great deal on Zoe Sherinian's work on the theologian and music composer James Theophilus Apavu at Tamil Nadu Theological Seminary. And there's a quote from him that just really stands out to me when he's talking about what kind of music ought to be used in Christian worship. And he says that the Indian classical music that's often favored in Indian Christian contexts is the wrong kind of music for the struggle because lyrics saying things like be at peace and don't be angry pacify people and instead what's necessary is folk music, the music of the people themselves and the music that will foster the struggle and foster the protest. Another example, this is not a Christian group, but there's a, an organization called REDS that's about rural development, and they have a, a drumming troupe where they will basically sort of set up in a village, and they'll start drumming, and everybody comes to watch, and they do these street dramas, which are, are protest dramas. They depict caste oppression, and they then recommend ways of rising up and banding together. And so it's a feeling of solidarity. It's a feeling of empowerment. It's not only about anger, although there's definitely an anger that says no, right? It's an anger that sees injustice and, and feels injustice in its bones and says that is a religiously important emotion. You have to pay attention to that deep anger at injustice because it tells you that something's wrong. And so from there, there are very positive things that can happen, but it's really important for the community to name that together, to lament it, to acknowledge it, and then to 
recognize that there are, are ways to respond. And so that appears in some of the liturgies that Tamil Nadu Theological Seminary has produced. It appears in some of the music. And then it goes hand in hand with the kind of activism that they're doing in the city uh, on behalf of Dalits. Of course you do a lot in this book and we can't cover everything. So I'm wondering, what, what do you hope the reader takes away from the book? And how do you imagine that others in the study of religion will benefit from your work, either in terms of uh, the types of conclusions you're coming up with or the types of approaches that you're employing throughout the book? The primary thing is that Rasa can become a lens on any religious phenomenon. It's a category that I think merits consideration across the academy, uh, just as many categories have derived from Western and European traditions and philosophical sources and now are applied to study Eastern traditions. This is a category that can really be fruitfully used across contexts because it refers to something very basic, which is bodies and emotion. And even though there are culturally specific ways that we express and experience those, it's still something that connects us as human beings. And so it can really help. And so when I wrote the book, I was thinking of, you know, an intro to religion class. Wouldn't it be interesting to frame that class by basic religious emotions. So to look at religions of peace, religions of love, religions of protest and fury, or some of the other of the nine rasas, and to see where are these religiously significant. I also think that this theory is very helpful for contemporary events, for religious scholarly analysis of what's happening in our world. Um, I was thinking about this over the weekend with the mass shooting in Orlando and also thinking about how do religious communities respond to this. So, you know, I woke up and went to church on uh, Sunday morning having just received this news and was thinking about how religious communities can be a place to talk about our fear, to talk about our anger and grief, our desire for a better world, our loves, our losses, our conflicting angles on an event like this. So there's so much here in terms of terrorism and religious difference and guns and sexuality. And we're having very emotional responses to it wouldn't it be helpful to start there, to analyze the emotions? What are the things that are contributing to these strong feelings that we're having right now, these strong and conflictual feelings? How are we wanting to respond to our anger? Are we scapegoating? Are we targeting another group? Are there constructive ways that together we can talk about our emotional and deeply held responses based in our own formation and background to an event like this. I think we need ways to be able to talk about emotion in the public sphere and this can perhaps give us a way into that. Well, Michelle, thank you for writing a wonderful book and congratulations on your award. Thank you again and thank you for this conversation, Christian.